Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you will find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Hello, and welcome to Business Line's State of Economy podcast on global economy. I am Lokeshwari. We are joined today by Prasenjit Basu, Chief Economist, ICICI Securities. We'll be discussing the drivers behind the stubbornly high global inflation, previous episodes when inflation went through the roof, and the central bank response in such instances. Hello, Mr. Basu. Welcome to the State of Economy podcast. Thank you for having me. We were all extremely worried when CPI inflation in the US hit 9% in 2022, and it crossed the 10% mark in the EU and UK and so on. But this is not the first time that the world is experiencing such high inflation rates. So can you share with us about some other instances of such uh, raging inflation in history and what caused these episodes? This episode is really the first in at least 30 years. In fact, um, in the in the developed world, it has been it has become quite rare to have inflation uh, in double digits uh, or anything like eight or nine percent. And the last time it really happened was in the early 1980s. So this inflationary episode, there were several months in which we had uh, inflation at a 40-year high. Now, in, in other parts of the world, of course, as we know, even in India, we've had episodes of much higher inflation. For instance, in the entire period from 2009 to 2014, uh, for most of that five-year period, India's inflation rate was around 10% or, or, or slightly higher. So uh, in the developing countries, it is a little more common, but in the developed world, it had become quite rare to see such high levels of inflation. In fact, inflation of even above 4% was was quite rare uh, over the past uh, three decades or so. This time, of course, uh, has been unique. Uh, It's been particularly bad. In my view, the, the, the primary causes are monetary. There's been very rapid monetary growth, particularly in the US, uh, in the aftermath of COVID. And that caused uh, this inflationary episode to happen. Uh, And of course, it was exacerbated by very large fiscal stimulus packages. Um, In in, uh, late 2020 and early 2021, uh, which boosted boosted, uh, consumption, particularly over the past uh, two or three years. But really, uh, the major cause is monetary. Uh, the U.S. has had much faster monetary growth. Uh, if you look at uh, broad money supply, U.S. money supply or M2 was growing at an average pace of 18.2% year on year between March 2020 and February 2022. So that was a, a 23-month period during which you had excessively rapid monetary growth. Uh, in fact, in the previous 80 years, there was no month in which uh, M2 in the US grew more than 10.5% before COVID. And then during COVID, you basically had, uh, for for one year, you had M2 growing more than 20% every month. Uh, And then the second year, it was still growing about uh, 14% or higher every single month. And so you had two years of very rapid monetary growth, uh, which led to the spike in inflation, which really started by about June 2021. By June 2021, 
Core CPI inflation in the U.S. was already above 3%. It was above 4% by October 2021. So long before the Ukraine war, a lot of people uh, mistakenly attribute this inflationary episode primarily to the Ukraine war. But in fact, it predated the Ukraine war by quite a bit. Uh, and it had to do primarily with excessively rapid monetary growth. So you don't think it has anything to do with the supply side constraints that were caused by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and maybe with the revival of the opening up of the economy after the COVID-19 pandemic, maybe the demand also revived and that also led to this inflation? Yes, of course, demand revived. But the reason why demand revived was because money supply was growing very rapidly for, an, for a very long period of time. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, central bankers stopped looking at monetary aggregates over the past decade. They began to, to believe that money supply did not matter, which was, which was quite silly because, of course, money supply matters. If you have excessively rapid money supply growth, you will eventually have inflation. Uh, what they were looking at was the wrong aggregate. They were looking at just the size of the central bank balance sheet or base money. Now, base money growth was very, very strong, 2009 to 2012, and then again uh, subsequently. But although base money, the amount of money that is actually printed by central banks was growing very rapidly during that time, the actual money supply, or M2, was not growing so rapidly. It was only growing 8 or 9% in uh, most of 2010, 2011, 2012, primarily because banks were choosing to hold on to excess reserves. They were holding excess reserves. They were very cautious about lending. And so what is called the money multiplier collapsed. And you had a collapse in the money multiplier and M2, actual money supply, didn't grow that rapidly. So uh, this time around, it's been different. Uh, in 2020, the money multiplier was quite stable. Banks had no reason to hold excess reserves. They, they had uh, been fully recapitalized. They felt quite confident. And when, um, when base money, when the money printed by the central bank grew rapidly, it also translated into actual money supply growing very rapidly. And in fact, as I said, money supply was growing faster in every month of those 23 months. Every single month, it was growing faster year on year than at any single month in the previous 80 years. So it was very, very rapid money, money supply growth, which caused this inflationary episode. And uh, ironically, over the last uh, six or seven months, US money supply has contracted. It is currently down about three and a half percent year on year. So that is the first contraction in US money supply, year on year contraction for the first time since the Second World War. But that is now needed to overcome the impact of that period of excessively rapid money growth that you had during the two-year COVID phenomenon. If we look back at the inflationary period in 1975 and 1980s when the US inflation touched about 14% and so on, uh, so that was also kind of uh, led by these expansionary monetary policies of the central bank and the Nixon, the Dixon period and so on. So can you kind of uh, relate this episode and that and the way 
Paul Walker went about controlling inflation at that point. Is there any yeah. takeaway uh, from that episode? Well, uh, that episode was, you know, if you look at actual money aggregates, money supply didn't grow anywhere near as rapidly as it grew in the 2020 to 2022 period. Uh, so money supply actually didn't grow that rapidly. But yes, it, it was growing a bit too fast, given the fact that you had a recession at that time. And you had a supply shock. In 1973, in October 1973, OPEC cartel got together and raised oil prices dramatically. Uh, the, a typical barrel of oil used to cost $3 a barrel uh, before the Yom Kippur War of 1973 in October. The OPEC uh, cartel got together and, uh, and pushed prices up. They, they reduced their supply of, of oil and prices went up to about $11 a barrel. From $3 to $11 a barrel within about four or five months, that was one major cause of that what is called stagflation. This was the first such episode because uh, until 1970, the US was the world's swing producer of oil. It had excess, um, excess capacity in oil, but it ran out of excess capacity in 1970. And, and so the OPEC cartel, which was really put together between 1971 and 73, uh, particularly after those countries, uh, you know, Kuwait, UAE, etc., became, they ceased to be protectorates of Britain. So you had a, a larger cartel of, of newly independent Arab countries getting together with Saudi Arabia, putting together that oil cartel called OPEC. Uh, and then, of course, in 1979, February 1979, you had the uh, Iranian revolution, uh, the, the Islamic revolution in Iran, which, which resulted in, uh, in a huge spike. Uh, in oil prices further. So from $3 a barrel in October 1973, prices reached about $36 a barrel by about March, April of 1979. So this was a so-called second oil price shock. This caused stagflation to really get a lot worse. And initially, the central bank tried to accommodate the situation because they were responding to the stagnation of the economy rather than to the inflationary problem. Um, they accommodated it through uh, to, through monetary growth, uh, and that only exacerbated inflation. And so uh, Jimmy Carter appointed Paul Volcker as, uh, as Fed chairman. He remained the Fed chairman in the early years of the Reagan administration. Uh, and in 1982, of course, he raised interest rates dramatically uh, to ensure that, uh, that you had a significantly positive real interest rate uh, in the U.S., that, uh, that caused a recession, but it also killed off inflation. So by about 83, 84, inflation was killed off. And of course, actually, Volcker was responsible for, for doing it, but he was helped by the fact that, uh, that with the recession in the US, oil prices had, had moderated dramatically as well. So while most of the credit does go correctly to Volcker, some of the credit also goes to... Uh, to lower oil prices. Uh, but at any rate, uh, that set off a long period of, of three or four decades during which inflation was very uh, well-contained and well-behaved in the developed world. Uh, so this episode has been rather unique. And I think uh, what is interesting is that the current chairman of the Fed 
is a non-economist, the first non-economist chairman of the Fed since uh, Burns uh, in the late 1970s. The, the person responsible for the spike in the late 1970s inflation was a non-economist. The current one is a non-economist too. I, I, I remember thinking when he was appointed that you wouldn't appoint an economist who doesn't, who has no training in the law as chief justice of, a, of the Supreme Court, would you? So uh, I think appointing a, a lawyer with no training in economics whatsoever was somewhat foolish and uh, the consequences have been felt. The way the central banks are going about now, uh, looking at inflation and prioritizing inflation over growth, you know, and sometimes it gets a little obsessive and maybe the economies are at times going on the brink of recession even now. So do you think that's the right way to go? Well, it is the only way to go because if you need, if you want to contain inflation, if central banks are truly committed to their inflation targets, then uh, they have to ensure that actual inflation uh, stays within the targeted range. Uh, and uh, core PCE inflation target in the US is 2%. It has been above 4%. It has been more than double uh, the target uh, inflation rate since October 2021. So almost we've almost had two years, two full years of, of inflation being double what the official target is. Uh, so the central bank is obliged to keep a hawk eye on inflation and, um, and therefore they are reining in money supply. Now, what is interesting to note is two things. Uh, one is that the fiscal situation in the United States, the fiscal deficit uh, in the latest, uh, in the latest uh, 12 months has been a little over 8%, about 8.3% of GDP. And with such a large fiscal deficit, you're essentially seeing a, a bit of a, an additional fiscal stimulus because there have been some tax cuts, there have been some spending increases, a lot of spending increases, of course, most of which were aimed at long-term things like uh, uh, providing industrial subsidies to, to the technology sector and to, and to the green, uh, green economy. But those subsidies have contributed to widening the fiscal deficit and if you have a widening of the fiscal deficit, that also acts as, uh, as, a, as a stimulus to aggregate demand. And so inflation is, is higher as a result. So uh, not only inflation, but in fact, in the U.S., uh, the real, uh, real economy is doing quite well. I mean, uh, in the second quarter, we've just had a revision downwards to 2.1%. But 2.1% growth at a time when uh, interest rates are as high as they are, uh, is is actually quite strong. So the economy is strong, I think, partly because uh, fiscal policy is too loose. And not only is current fiscal policy too loose, but you had a long period of uh, excessive amounts of stimulus being handed to consumers. So there was there were three stimulus packages, two passed by uh, the Trump administration in, in its last few months, and then uh, a third one by uh, Biden uh, in March 2021, soon after he came to office. So you had three huge stimulus packages, most of which actually transferred cash directly into the accounts of all U.S. citizens. And so uh, U.S. citizens are now sitting on a lot of excess cash. 
that they are slowly spending. The excess cash was basically saved during that time. That's it. Those savings are being slowly run down. The labor market is tight. So, so there's, there's lots of reasons for aggregate demand to stay strong. In the European Union, it's a little bit different. I'd say in both the EU and uh, the UK, monetary growth was rapid, but not as drastically so as in the, uh, as in the US. But in the entire developed world, prices are strongly connected to each other. And if you have inflation in the US, you're going to have some in the European Union and the UK as well. Um, of course, as you pointed out, there, there were some supply factors uh, during the early phases of the, of the uh, post-COVID recovery. Demand picked up strongly. Supply didn't keep, uh, keep, keep pace, particularly for things like semiconductors. Um, so there were some supply disruptions that aggravated inflation in, uh, in the EU and the UK. But most of the inflation problem was caused by excessive monetary growth in the US and, uh, and above normal monetary growth uh, in, the, in the rest of the developed world. Now, the exception, of course, for a long time was Japan. Japan did not have enough inflation. In fact, Japan was suffering from deflation for nearly 25 years. Interestingly, the, the yen depreciated dramatically over the past year. Uh, and that rapid depreciation of the yen from about, actually from about March 2022 onwards, has, uh, has uh, contributed to inflation rising above 3% in Japan, which is, for Japan, a huge boom. Because what it means is that uh, you have strong nominal GDP growth. Nominal GDP has grown stronger in the last 12 months than at any time in the last 30 years of Japan. And that is a boon to Japan. It improves Japan's fiscal position. It uh, improves uh, Japan's uh, corporate revenues. Uh, and it is basically you know, making Japan the, uh, the, the most uh, favored equity market in the developed world for good reasons this, uh, this time around. Over the past 12 months, Japan's equity market has done really well. So, so that's the rest of the world. Now, interestingly, in India, we had inflation that was almost purely a supply phenomenon rather than a demand phenomenon. In that, if you look at monetary growth in India, uh, monetary growth, M3 in India is a, the exact analog of M2 in the US. Now, M3 growth in India in the 60 years before COVID averaged about 15.4%. But during the COVID period, during the two-year COVID period, it averaged just about 11%. So in fact, monetary growth in India was slower during COVID than in the previous 30 and the previous 60 years pre-COVID. Since then, in fact, it slowed further. Uh, so if anything, monetary policy has been quite restrained. But I, you know, interestingly, it is a little more difficult to manage monetary policy in India at the moment because the, the UPI phenomenon has reduced the demand for cash. So uh, you know, perhaps 9% uh, M3 growth in India is perhaps, you know, fast enough, given that transactions demand for money has declined dramatically. People are now using UPI, you know, phone pay, Paytm, etc. to make their payments. And so, you know, maybe 9% is enough monetary growth in India, 9 or 
Now, the point is that it is a supply phenomenon. You see that very clearly. In India, inflation has been primarily caused by either fuel or food over the past uh, couple of years. Now, for good reason, the central bank, RBI, unlike the US central bank, RBI does not target core inflation. It targets headline CPI inflation because food and energy are very important components of the consumer basket in India. And it makes no sense to leave those out and just focus on core inflation. So for very good reasons, the RBI focuses on headline CPI inflation. And um, of course, it has been a bit of a struggle given that last year, post-Ukraine war, there was a big spurt in prices of crude oil, of course, which uh, India is a major importer of, but also of things like coal, uh, edible oils, and fertilizers. So the entire fossil fuel complex saw a big spurt uh, in inflation last year. And uh, that made it very difficult for, for the RBI to keep inflation in India within its, uh, its target band of 2 to 6%. By about November last year, RBI had succeeded in bringing inflation below 6%. But just as we were all beginning to declare victory, along came a couple of food price shocks. You had the phenomenon of uh, high prices of non-PDS food grain. Uh, Non-PDS wheat and rice prices spurted up. Ironically, because the, the, the government was issuing free rice and, uh, rice and wheat to about 813 million uh, citizens. So 813 million residents of India were getting free rice. And ironically, when that happens, when you have a zero price, it's no longer counted as part of the CPI. So non-PDS food grain prices, the weight, their weight in the CPI basket increased dramatically. And it looked as if India had very high food inflation. Uh, at any rate, there was it was basically a statistical problem, but nonetheless, the RBI had to be concerned about that, and so it had to keep uh, interest rates high for longer. And then, of course, in July, we've had a massive spurt in vegetable prices, uh, which, again, caused inflation to spurt above the 6%, top end of the target range. I think that um, the RBI has done very well to control that inflationary spurt. It uh, actually tightened monetary policy through the back door through something called the incremental CRR. Uh, for all uh, incremental uh, increases in deposits between May and July, banks must now hold 10% of, of that incremental amount uh, in reserve. So that ICRR hike, uh, which is supposed to last at least until 8th September, will probably last a little bit longer in my view. But that is aimed now at bringing inflation down quickly from that sudden spurt in July. But also, I think uh, uh, the government has done quite well to increase supplies of many of the vegetables that were causing that inflation. Tomatoes was dramatically so. Uh, apparently, the tomato price has gone from over 200 uh, rupees uh, to 14 rupees as of yesterday in, in the Delhi area. So that is success. That is definitely success. Uh, but the whole complex of vegetable prices did spur upward, and uh, controlling that is going to be important. 
you know, those are supply. It's purely supply. You know, as I said, it was a supply issue that caused the food grade inflation. The supply issues with uh, with the monsoons um, having an adverse effect on distribution of uh, of vegetables across the country. All of that cannot really be dealt with through pure monetary policy. But uh, but the central bank, if it is, uh, if it wants to retain credibility as uh, as an inflation targeting central bank. Um, must take monetary action. And so it has. All this inflation fighting by raising rates and so on, uh, the Fed's uh, target rate is 2% of PC, like you said, and even the ECB is targeting 2%. So do you think they're going to get there because they want to get there and also keep the rate, keep it down on a sustainable basis, right? So do you think this um, aggressive rate hikes that's going on now, that will achieve it or they'll have to keep raising the rates for some more time or how is it going to all pan out going ahead? Well, uh, they have, you know, uh, the, the Fed uh, in the U.S. has already raised rates to a range of 525 to 5.5% for the Fed funds rate. Uh, and they now have an inverted yield curve. Uh, they've had an inverted yield curve since the 5th of July, 2022. And there was a brief, briefly inverted curve in April 2022 as well. So we've that inversion with 10-year 10 10-year 10 yields lower than two-year yields, and in fact quite a bit slower than uh, the overnight rates. Uh, that basically that inverted yield curve is is signaling that there is a recession ahead. But uh, the the central bank has no option but to keep rates high, perhaps even raise them a bit if if needed, perhaps raise them by a small amount to 5.5% rather than just this range. That is needed because core PCE inflation still remains too high. It's above 4%. It's getting very close to that 4% mark. It'll probably fall below 4% within the next month or two. But it has that target is 2%. So unless they get closer to 2%, which I think will only happen after a recession sets in, the Fed cannot take its foot off it has to keep rates high. It has to keep monetary policy tight uh, in order to uh, in order to ensure that it regains credibility as an inflation fighting central. You know, it, its inflation target has some meaning. So for the ECB and the BOE, the challenge is less extreme now because interestingly, they don't target core inflation; they target the headline inflation rate. Uh, like RBI does. And the headline inflation rate is going to come down primarily because oil prices are down down a lot year on year and other commodity prices are down as well. The headline inflation rate, even in the US, has has already come down quite a bit more. So you talked about 9.1%. You know, 9.1% uh, inflation referred to the headline CPI inflation rate in the US. It was over 10% in, in the uh, Eurozone and UK, uh, but that is now moderating. Headline inflation is moderating across the developed world, primarily because oil prices are lower year on year. So what what if the core PC does not come to 2% and what if it settles at a new normal? You know, What if the increasing purchasing power has taken inflation higher and you think Fed will adjust its uh, target rate and they, they have to Settle down, you know, adjust it going ahead. So no, I don't think I don't think that uh, core PC inflation will stay 
above 2% permanently. It's, this is not a permanent phenomenon. Uh, it, you know, if you look at inflationary expectations, uh, they haven't really spurted up. So it's not as if we're going to see a, a permanent shift in inflation to a high level. I think it'll take a while before inflation gets down to that 2% mark. It'll probably be uh, only around the middle of next year that the core PC inflation rate will be back down to 2%. You know, the path there is uh, strewn with a little bit of economic weakness along the way. So uh, thank you so much, Mr. Basu, for joining us and sharing your uh, insights and perspectives with us. My Bye. pleasure.